Forbes Books presents Entrepreneur Rx with Dr. John Schufeld, helping healthcare professionals own their future. Joining me this week is a physician and surgeon turned serial entrepreneur. Her name is Susan Nicholas, and she is the founder of SusanNicholas.org. Susan is also a podcast host, author, and international speaker. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, John. Happy to be here. You have such a cool, weird, interesting background. So tell me, so you went to medical school, and then give me the, give me the background. Sure. I went to medical school at the University of Iowa. Then I went to the Bay Area to do my training in general surgery and ended up doing a clinical fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery at Stanford before I, I would say, had my dark night of the soul and began to, I guess, wake up consciously. That's what I call it now. At the time, I didn't know what was happening with me. And what it was, John, was I thought that um, I had reached the height of my worldly success, meaning I had accomplished everything that I had ever set out to accomplish. Yet on the inside, I felt empty and I had this woefulness and I didn't know how to change it. And so I I think I became afraid at that time, but I knew that I had to change something significantly to go on living, like meaningful, like a meaningful shift in life. And of course, I had been very career oriented my entire life and thought it was just I made a career mistake after all those years. And I began to make the shift from clinical medicine into the business side of healthcare, as I called it at the time. And I ended up uh, leaving the Bay Area, moving to Atlanta, where I currently reside. I've been here now for 13 years. And I went to business school at Emory University, ended up founding a healthcare company, did that for about four or five years, became a healthcare equity investor. In that time frame, I had that soulful emptiness again. Like I was pursuing all these titles, accolades, education, but inside I was unfulfilled and I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. And I came to this place where I said, if I go through this again, I'm not going to make it. I knew I wasn't going to make it this time around. And I had a two-year-old at the time. And this is about 2012 timeframe that I was... (laughs) I don't know, just woefully sad again and unfulfilled no matter what I was doing. And then I began leaving out of my body and had a full unconscious awakening. And um, fast forward, here I am doing my conscious work. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that, that's a lot to unpack. Okay. So let's way, let's back way up. Where did you go to undergrad? In my hometown. I'm from West Virginia and I went to WVU for my undergrad in biology. And then you made, so I went to Drake right down the street from University of Iowa, but how did you end up in Iowa of all places? You know, I received uh, like an, a scholarship there and I was like, that sounds good. It ended up being, yeah. I, I want to use this term very loosely, just <laughs> oh affordable to go to the University of Iowa was then to stay at home and, and go to my local university. But, okay. So if you look back you know, there's, there's that old Steve Jobs quote about connecting the dots backwards. If you look back from where you are today, was there anything in your adolescence or in college where you just were more aware 
than your peer group or just more evolved, I guess is a better way to say it. I mean, you this is such a huge dichotomous change. I mean, looking back, was this, was this foreseeable? Perhaps for a, a more evolved person, but during my journey, I was not, I, I don't consider myself being mature or evolved. I knew though, John, that inside I did not feel good. Uh, I struggled with happiness my whole life. Um, I went through kind of periods of depression, particularly in residency. And I, I just thought it was my circumstances. And I thought every intern feels the way that I do. And I didn't think it was strange. But now looking back and uh, knowing what I know now, I think the first clue was when I was a first year medical student, I developed angioedema. And I began swelling. And I remember my first year roommate, we had this big um, Annals of Internal Medicine book. <laughs> he said, <laughs> you know, that big, thick book. He said, I've seen this before. And he like literally points a finger at a page and goes, that's what you have. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I think you're right. And so I went to the school, you know, medical clinic or whatever. And they did all these, you know, compliment and uh, see you know, complement an S-race inhibitor type of test on me to see where where the immune response was going wrong. And it was just knocked up to idiopathic angioedema. And I literally suffered with that for nearly 20 years until I learned how to heal myself. So I think there were clues, John, but I just did not have awareness of them at the time. But looking back, I mean, you were a woman in what was then, not anymore, thankfully, but what was then a primary male field. And then you go into the ultra alpha male field at probably the ultra alpha male institution of Stanford. There, you had all this reason to be not happy. I mean, you know, I had an EM residency where I had a pretty good time and, you know, I worked hard, but not like general surgeons and, mm-hmm. and certainly not like CT surgeons. I, I'd always want to be a CT surgeon ever since I was literally five years old until I met these two who were just total lunatics. I'm like, well, I don't want to end up like them. <laughs> and, yeah. but, but you had all these good reasons to be kind of depressed and kind of not happy in your surroundings. Did, did you think it was more circumstantial than what was inner to you? Yes. I thought it was all external. And I was on this, what I call this external journey of validation. I think many of us are on a journey like that, where we're going through life, doing what we're supposed to do, checking the boxes, getting good jobs, getting education, getting titles, getting money, accruing things. And we think that this will make us happy or fulfill us. And at the end of the day, we find that we are not. And that is what this did for me. I was on this external journey of validation. When I say external, I mean outside of myself journey, looking outside of myself for what I should do, what society thinks is the right thing to do. In that, of course, I used education to get out of poverty. I came from a teenage mom. My mom was 17 when she had me, and I was her second child. And my family was in a depraved state of existence. I grew up in housing projects, surviving with the help of government rations. My grandmother was a prostitute later had her own brothel. 
and I grew up in the energy of shame around money and the energy of uh, deprivation of lack of scarcity. And I believe that if I could learn, if I could just educate myself, I could get out of it. And one of the gifts that I believe I was given was the ability to learn. I could learn things. I knew that from a very young age that I was a smart kid. I could get straight A's. I could learn things. And so that's what I did. I just went about really steadfast that I'm going to get out of this and I'm going to do it by educating myself. Wow. Well, you didn't just educate yourself. You literally went to the premier places to do so. Okay. So you literally have the bull by the tail, for lack of a better way to say it. You finished Stanford CT Surgery Fellowship. You can walk into literally any institution in the country, probably name your price. And then you said, you know what? I'm not happy. I'm going to business school. It was, was it that sort of stop or was it, did you work as an attending for a period of time? And then like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. So my journey was a little more at that time, cerebral. It wasn't, I didn't think like that in a sense. I, I guess I knew that going through my clinical fellow that I, I could come out and get a job. That wasn't the shift. What was the shift was during my clinical fellow, I attempted to take my own life and I knew that I couldn't do it anymore, that it didn't matter how much money I could make, what institution I could go to. I felt like inherently there was something wrong. And I, and I, I had to change to go on living. At that point, it wasn't that I, you know, thinking about like, like what I used to think about, where was like, where was I going to train? And what was that going to look like on my resume? And what kind of money I'm going to make and what job and where am I going to live and all that? It was about literally existence. <laughs> like, it came to the point where I, I didn't believe I could go on in the path that I was on and go on existing. There are times that I wished not to live any longer. I had to change something like meaningful, dramatic. Like it had to be a paradigm shift in my awareness for me to go on in life. And I recognized that during my fellowship. Wow. I mean, that is incredibly brave to come all that way and work as hard as you had to work and realize this ain't it. Something's wrong here and I need to change. That, that's really brave. What, that's amazing. You know, I wonder how many physicians with, the, with we both know the rate of mm -hmm. physician suicides, you kind of just wonder how many others are having this existential exactly. crisis. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. You hit the nail on the head. And I hear it more and more as I speak up about my journey, about more and more physicians like ourselves who are just exhausted. And maybe they were on a similar path that this was their way out of whatever their situation was, or this was their way of validating their worth or their value, that they're good enough, that they're smart enough in some way, whatever their lack of enoughness was. And then they find that this isn't it. It's not what they were, for lack of a better word, what they were meant to do in life. And then we become afraid because we've, we've invested so much time, so much money, so much of ourselves. The expectations of us are that we are going to practice medicine. And it, quite frankly, when you embark upon the path that we did, you don't necessarily have the skills to do other things. Like it's, it's very narrow in a sense that it's like you went to medical school, you're going to be a doctor, you know, and if you're not doing that, then you've got to retrain in some way. And many of us aren't willing to do that. But I tell you, once I 
spoke it, like once I made the decision that I wasn't going to continue on in this path, I had anesthesiologists, people from that were much more senior, my mentors secretly say, you know, I wish I was as brave when I was at your stage or, or whatnot to, to make the change, but I wasn't. And they feel stuck and unfulfilled. And there's much, there's a, a, an incredible amount of, like you said, physician suicide, even in the residents, our medical students, even there was this bridge in Stanford that they would block off because kids would jump off of the bridge. And I was like, what is this? You know, what, what is going on with us? And I think that my journey was not dissimilar. There's a great amount of substance abuse. I remember my surgical program at UCSF. I don't know the exact percent, but I would go as far to say 80 to 90% of the residents were on antidepressants or were drinkers or had some type of substance abuse. And it's like, why? And the attrition was very, very high. And it was really um, touted as weakness. Like you were weak if you couldn't you know, get through. And then that... I think further injures the soul, you know, because it traumatizes us uh, in a way where we, it, it compounds the not enoughness. You know, I, I think a lot of times we go into these fields and, and like I said, I'm the poster child for doing this, you know, going into fields thinking that it's going to validate your self-worth, but that worth, that value can only come from within you. And I believe that is what we are not taught in elementary school and college and medical school that we need to look at the soul, like we need to look at the spirit of us, the life energy of us, whatever you want to call that entity that animates us and heal that. And from there, we can pursue what it is that we are truly meant to do in this life. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, a reincarnationist believer. And I mean, that's you're speaking literally my language. OK, so let's jump a little forward now. So when we look at your website, when I look at your website, the first thing I see is I awaken humanity to consciousness. And you said you had a conscious awakening. So for people who aren't familiar with that term, what does that mean? Consciousness to me means an awareness or wakefulness to your true self, to your higher self or your eternal existence. You know, having a higher awareness that it's not just this physical third dimensional life that you are living, that this is just part of maybe a blink of an eye, like just a part of your eternal existence. And to me, conscious awareness is having awareness of that, of that of which you truly are or who you truly are or what you truly are, whatever you want to call it. Some people call it the multifaceted existence of self, of higher self. There are so many dimensions of existence and it's beginning to have awareness of that and and realizing that we are all multidimensional beings, you know, having a human or incarnated experience and embodied experiences in a third dimensional earth environment. And then from that awareness, many things are revealed to you. And I think you've probably heard it. I know I learned it in medical school, this idea that there's junk DNA. And once we have awareness, we know there's no mistakes in the universe. There are no coincidences. We don't have any junk in our DNA. We just didn't know what it did. So we, we didn't know how to describe it. And I believe that junk is part of our metaphysical superpowers, if you will. It's our powers of intuition, our powers of telepathy, our powers of clairaudience, of individuals that develop their sense of remote viewing and all sorts of, I call them superpowers, the ability to see auras, my ability now to channel energy and to heal from a place of the soul, like on an energetic level, uh, to be able to tap into higher realms of understanding and existence and really ignite our creativity. It's, it's a part of us that I believe is awakened. 
it doesn't look like it's doing much, but once you're awakened, those genes, if you will, um, that DNA, that, they, they, that encoded part of our superpowers, our metaphysical superpowers, began to be illuminated. So do you think, does someone need to have this existential crisis? Do you think that's the catalyst for a conscious awakening? Or can it be more pragmatic? Can it be more, you know mm-hmm. what, you need the existential crisis? I don't think that you need one. Uh, that was certainly my way into it. But what I do think, um, John, is that once more people that have these awakened experiences begin speaking, that other people can then learn from it because I believe we have inklings of it. This is my belief. If we are destined to wake up in this incarnation, in this lifetime, to have this higher awareness, to make our ascension, if you will, then you may have little inklings along the way. We know it, but we may not, we may be looking again for validation for that, for our experiences. Is this a soul level sort of awakening? In other words, you know, I always, when, when someone's acting in a way that I think does not befit them, I always think they're probably a young soul and maybe I've been around a mm-hmm. few more times than they have. Is that, do you think this whole soul level 10 is the pinnacle of when you realize what you're discussing now, do you think it's an advanced soul level? So that's a very profound statement because I I thought that myself when I see someone that is dense in ideology and thought, and I think, oh, that must be a young soul. But I think our, our term of young and old when it comes next to the idea or expanse of eternity is probably, we probably don't have a sense of what we're talking about, really. I had been told even when I was a child that I was an old soul. And I think what that meant for the people around me was that they perceived that I saw things differently or behaved differently or didn't play childish games as long and whatnot. When I look at it now, the way that I perceive it now is that those souls, you know, those individuals who are acting and behaving in certain ways that aren't becoming of maturity, like a wisdom that we kind of uh, uh, liken that to, perhaps they are not programmed or they're their soul contract, whatever it is, their blueprint for living in this life wasn't for them to wake up now for whatever reason. And I, and I truly believe that all of our souls are infinite and connected, that we come in as babies, but the soul of us is infinite and carries a legacy of memory, many generations forwards and backwards that, but we come into this incarnation with things to overcome. And in the third dimension here, I believe we are cycling through energies and densities of fear, of, of insecurities, of shame, of guilt, of forgiveness, like acceptance. We're cycling through dense energies that we have not overcome for generations. And so we, we can recognize in the physical dimension that there are cycles of poverty or cycles of whatever, entitlement, whatever, whatever it is. We see it generationally. And we don't give credence to the energy that we carry in our, D- our DNA, the root of us. Like if you go down to the very like molecular or the quantum level of energy, we don't give credence to that energy of us passing through. And I always say that we inherit more from our ancestors and our, and our grandparents or, or aunt, you know, whatever, than our genes, our physical genes that create our physical body. We inherit the energy of past generations. 
because just think of what DNA is. Just think what the building blocks of life are. At the very, very root of them, they are energy. And if we have, you know, grandma or grandpa's nose or features or height or something, could we not also carry the energy of the past generations? And then we cycle through that over and over again until I believe, John, that we transform the energy. And that's what we're here to do, transform the energies of our life, of our past, so then we can, our next incarnation is, is in, a, in a place of higher existence where we just have different issues to um, learn and overcome. We're not cycling through the dense energies of fear um, and, and uh, I, I would say uh, this unworthiness that we feel in our souls. Okay, so this will be, so I, it's, it's a little scary how closely I track with what you're saying, because I think we may be in a minority, but let me ask you a really weird question now. Do you think that you picked your teenage mom as a vehicle, for lack of a better way to say it, to enter this world, knowing what you had to go through to get where you are now? Because, you know, for example, if you would have picked a white mom in suburbia and were raised in a different circumstances, chances are you would not be where you are today. You, you may be a perfectly happy CT surgeon. I mean, you may be a astrophysicist, but you probably wouldn't be where you are. Do you think you knew that coming into this world, that that was the journey and to get that, to get those puzzle pieces to line up, you had to come into this, existence of poverty and and deprivation yes and i think we all choose our parents yeah me too and i i don't think there are any accidents i remember as a teenager thinking that i must be adopted that i didn't belong with these people um that i felt different and then i had another thought i said well wait a second there's no agency in the world that would have given my parents a child so I must be there. I must have been born to them. I mean, I literally came to this awareness that there's something to this. The idea or the perception of choosing your parents took longer for me to accept. But I recognize it now that every piece of the journey was necessary to bring me to today. Yeah, I think literally the exact I'm adopted and started life in an orphanage. And I literally think exactly the same way. Which again, I think maybe we may be the, we may be crazy, we may be enlightened, but I think we're probably on the uh, unusual side of people who think that way. Um, okay, let me switch gears because now this is this is interesting. So I would have never thought that you, when you pivoted, you've pivoted and start talking about money, and the frequency of money, and then your TED talks. Can you how how did that? How did you pivot into the money aspect of what you're, what you're sharing? I think the driving force for that external journey, that external journey of validation I spoke about was, was about money. I didn't have an idea about the energy of money or money having a unique consciousness or anything like that, but it was the pursuit of having enough to support myself, to pay my bills. I could do something honorable that I, you know, I wouldn't have to um, cycle through prostitution or any type of degrading behavior to earn money or denigrating behavior, if you will. And so I think a lot of us pursue what we pursue from money. And I, and I think 
well, for me, when I had my conscious awakening, one of the most difficult entanglements was the money construct. I call it the money construct. I thought about there are several prevailing constructs of life, of ideologies of living on the planet. And I named them in my first book, The Duality of Being, those constructs of time, money, race, and religion. And all of the other constructs I could let go. I could say, you know what, you know, I, I see the purpose, but I don't, you know, I don't cling to those ideologies anymore. I'm, I'm free of that. But I could not free myself of the money construct. And what, when I say I couldn't free myself, that means I couldn't feel good in it. No matter how much money I made, any titles I accrued, jobs that I had, I never felt that I was paid enough, that I had enough. There never seemed to be enough. And I think several people cycle through that in, in higher, you know, multi-multi-millionaires, you know, will have that belief. And I didn't recognize it as a belief. And furthermore, I didn't recognize it as an energy that had, I had been carried over with, like that I was carrying, that I embodied those energies of deprivation, of shame, of scarcity, of lack around money, growing up in the conditions that I grew up in. And so once I had awareness around this, that this was an energy that could be transformed and that I could treat money or that I was in a relationship with this powerful force we call our money, I was like, oh, okay, wait a second. Maybe I can change my circumstances. And most importantly, I can change how I feel about it. We've heard people say that you can take the boy out of whatever circumstance, but can't take the circumstance out of the kid, whatever it's poverty, of shame, whatever it is. And I think that's because of the energy that's embodied. We, we embody the energy of deprivation, the energy of shame, the energy of not enoughness. We embody the energy of lack. And when we do, that shows up in our lives over and over and over again. No matter what happens, how much education we get, titles we get, money we make, relationships we're in, things that we accrue, that feeling remains. And that's because it has yet to be transformed. And I believe ultimately, John, that is what we are here to do on the planet. Yes, we have jobs in the physical world and things to learn about it. But our inner work is just, if not so, more important because it determines what happens to us next, you know, where we go next. And doesn't keep us cycling through dense ideologies of form and thought over and over again. Right. You have to repeat it. You have to go back and think, okay, I missed it on this life. I need to go back and repeat it. Mm -hmm. Can you share a story about an individual who's, who has been helped by you and maybe enlightened to find out their kind of true direction or help them get past this energy that they've inherited uh, and come into life with? Oh, of course. Well, I work with physicians like ourselves or physicians that have met the height of their, what I call clinical, their worldly success, but have that void. Um, I call it this crevasse for that emptiness. And what happens is um, that I, I work, it's like a multifaceted approach because it's uncovering the belief and then allowing the person to uncover the belief. And unlike most um, coaches, if you will, I also incorporate energy healing, uh, energy uh, I, healing on the level of the souls of the ancestors to transform energies. 
And so I was working with a physician uh, internist who was very disenfranchised, you know, just exhaust, like everyone exhausted, didn't feel right, wanted to do something more integrative, um, wanted to do something that actually she felt was helping her clients or her patients, not just pushing pills. Yet this very bright woman also had a lot of energies related to her childhood and her existence where she lacked confidence um, and had difficulty with her self-worth, had a lot of fear to overcome to doing something that was a little bit out of the box. And we worked together for three months. And I'm telling you, uh, this individual would not look you in the eye. And then she, I literally saw her posture change. Like she would sit up and speak and then had this vigor for life of, of, and bravery and this ability to move forward without fear, with this inner knowing, this inner trust. And I tell you, um, doing this type of work is so incredibly transformative because it heals at the level of the soul. It heals the ancestors. Some will say that when we do this inner work of soul transformation of healing, we hear heal generations seven back and forward, that we not only change ourselves, but our children and their children and so on and so forth, and then our parents, their parents, and so all the ancestors, because this is a, we are all connected, and this life force, this energy of us is all connected. There's no separation of time, space, or geography. You know, this energy transcends all time, space, and geography. And so it's the idea that we hit, you know, we get it where at the root of it, we don't cut it out. We don't ignore it. We can't forget it. We can't, you know, put it on the back burner. This energy must be transformed for your listeners that have some concepts of energy. I liken the energy of the soul of us to the energy of everything in life from the very first law of thermodynamics. And this goes a little bit into physics, but the very first law of thermodynamics states that energy is conserved, that is not created nor destroyed, but it changes state, that that energy must be transformed. And that is true not just of our electricity, hydro, solar power, but it's true of the energy of us, the soul of us, the spirit of us, the essence of us, whatever you want to call that, which animates us, that brings us to life, if you will. And so when it comes to these blocks, if you will, in life where we're not we're cycling through dramas, traumas, pains, fears, lack, scarcity, whatever it is that you're cycling through. Intellectually, we can get it. We can say, you know what? I shouldn't feel this way. I should do this or do that. But if we haven't transformed the energy, no matter how high we think or what we study or the physical things, actions that we take, if the energy is not transformed, we will cycle through once again and once again and once again. So you can't intellectualize yourself out of this. It has to be soul level transformation. Is, is that right? I think the intellectual part is necessary because there needs to be an alignment of your thoughts, your ideas, your language, and your feelings. And the feelings incorporate your beliefs. So that when, when this is all in alignment, I believe there's an acceleration of the transformation that can occur. And I want to share something with our listeners, John, if I could. And something that I've become aware of is that our feelings are energy, they're things, and they are indeed meant to be felt. We'd have, we don't have them for no reason at all. But our feelings are also 
in need of transformation. So when we feel something that doesn't feel good, it's showing us one more time the opportunity to transform that energy. And transformation doesn't have to be from love to hate, for example, but it can be acceptance. It can be compassion. It can be a place of understanding. It can be a place of higher awareness, a place of forgiveness. It is asking for some form of transformation. And I think what is most crucial in our physical life, like what shows up for us in our lives, is that the frequency of our feelings, those that emanate from our heart center, the, the resonance of that vibration from our heart, it's reverberated out into the universe and is what is returned to us in kind. It's like it is our true feelings that matter, that I would say that matter most. We must, we must transform the feeling within us. And that's, I believe, what we do not learn to do in medicine and, our, and we're not learning in schools. And so we carry these energies for our entire lifetime and then often generation to generation. So what you just said reminds me of a quote that I, that I and you can fact check this, but a quote that I saw that you liked, and, and I love quotes, but here it is, it's by David Mitchell. My life amounts to no more than one drop in a limitless ocean. Yet, what is any ocean but a multitude of drops? What, is, what does that mean to you? Yes, that is one of my favorite quotes. And that means that everything matters, that our thoughts matter, our ideas matter, our beliefs matter. And changing one little thing that we think is just a small thing matters. Because all these shifts in our awareness, all these shifts in our vibration are cumulative. It doesn't, like you said, it doesn't have to just be this big existential crisis and this big bang and like, oh my gosh, I had this great awareness and now I'm transformed. But it's all these small incremental shifts, those that you think are whatever, just this or that, that can change your life, can save your life and that of the multitudes. That's what that means to me. Wow. That is a really phenomenal description of what that quote encompasses. All right, so switching gears for a sec. So I love doing these podcasts because I get to talk to people like you who enlighten me and certainly enlighten the listeners as well. But tell me about your podcast where you, you share your wisdom on consciousness around life and money and love and relationships. Yes, I host the Be Conscious podcast, and it's, it's multidimensional, if you will. So I do interview individuals that are also on, I would say, an enlightened path or conscious journey. Often it's coming out of their secular work and realizing that they're not fulfilled and then doing, being brave enough to do what it is that they are meant to do. And that can take many forms, any form, truly many forms. Uh, but I also speak about the energy of money, you know, how we can relate to this relationship with our money, how it is a proxy for our innate self-worth, that we are always looking outward at our financial net worth and giving very little credence to our innate self-worth. And I did a little bit of, uh, of my career in equity finance, and I think it doesn't matter how facile or knowledgeable, knowledgeable you become about the external or the outside financial construct whether it's our institutions, our economies, 
our banking systems, our financial instruments, our, our physical money, our digital currencies. It doesn't matter how much you know. If we haven't transformed the energy of self-worth within you, that you'll see cycles of boom and bust, of accrued debt, and all these cycles that we, we can't explain. The wealthiest people, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can still cycle through these energies of scarcity, of deprivation, of fear around money, of shame around money, perhaps guilt, uh, greed, feelings of greed or guilt, how money was earned or spent. You can still have these energies to transform. So I do a lot of my speaking platforms on the frequency of money because I believe it is it's so empowering and transformative. And what stops many people from fulfilling their dreams, from living the life that they love, is around money. And imagine how empowered we would be as a global society if we did not fear money and that we knew how to have a relationship with it and that we we realize that we can accomplish anything, absolutely anything that we believe is in our highest interest for them, serving humanity in the highest way if we're not in the energy of lack and scarcity and fear surrounding our resources and our money. And I speak a lot about the continuum of wealth, that it's not just the dollars and cents. That's a part of it, and I think it's an integral part of it because it's our means of exchange on the planet. It's how we value and, tra and transact goods and services, and there's nothing wrong with it inherently. There's nothing wrong with it. But in the continuum of wealth, it is about our ideas and our connections. It's about our clients, our customers. It is about our health and wealth. It is about our creativity. It is how we get to decide the, the utilization of the resource we call our time. It's all of it and encompasses all of it. And really talking about the continuum of wealth is something that I speak about internationally uh, in the empowerment in this area. So, yes, that's what my podcast is about, relationships, people, time, money, all of it. Wow. Susan, thank you. Thank you so much for being for joining me on this podcast. This has really been transformational for me and I suspect it will be for the listeners as well. You are one of a kind. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks. To find out more about Susan, go to susannicholas.org. You can also follow her on Twitter at SusanNicholasMD and connect with her on LinkedIn by searching Susan Nicholas MD. Susan, thank you again. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Entrepreneur Rx with Dr. John Schufeld. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnschufeldmd.com. This has been a presentation of Forbes Books.